Well, hello there, and welcome to this Calvary Longview audio message. We're so glad you've chosen to take a moment to discover with us the truth that can be found in the Bible, and we pray that you'll be blessed by what you hear. Today, we have a guest speaker here to share with us an encouraging message about Jesus. We can't wait to get into God's Word, so crack open your Bible, grab your note-taking tools, and we'll get started. About 9.30 this morning, because I found out I would be here tonight. Uh, those of you who are on the prayer chain or may have heard otherwise, Pastor Al and Elaine and Deborah and the kids are in Seattle tonight. Uh, Pastor Al's niece, Tracy, uh, has brain cancer and is having surgery in the morning. So please keep them in your prayers, uh, Tracy, obviously, and the doctors and the nurses, and Pastor Al and the family that somehow through all of this that the Lord would be glorified and that maybe if there's family and friends there that don't know Christ, that this would be a time that they could be drawn to Christ. So keep them in mind, please. Keep them in prayer more than in mind and um, be faithful that way. And speaking of prayer, um, I know some of you are on the prayer chain and if you're interested in being on the prayer chain, and I would hope that you're interested in being on the prayer chain, not to be interested in just learning stuff. But if you're interested in being on the prayer chain, in the seat back pockets there, you know, where we have the communication cards, the connect cards, you can fill that out. Um, give an email address where you can be contacted and just uh, say you'd like to be on the prayer chain. It's, uh, we can't have too many people on the prayer chain, so it's, it's a good idea, right? So we've seen a lot of good things come out of the... Uh, the prayer chain, seeing a lot of prayers answered, seeing a lot of people encouraged. So I would encourage you that if you are a, you don't even have to be, always be a great prayer warrior, but if you believe in the power of prayer and you'd like to be able to pray for the people of this church, and we have requests come in time for people who don't necessarily come here, but they're family members of people that come here or they're friends of people that come here, and uh, we are always willing to pray in behalf of any of those prayer requests that are submitted. So with that in mind, uh, we're going to be in 2 Kings tonight, chapter 13. The first script I actually want to read to you, if you're quick and want to turn there, it's just a couple of verses exactly in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And most of you will probably be familiar with this. It says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So it's profitable. It's been inspired by the Holy Spirit. Profitable for doctrine, in other words, the things that we believe, the things we hold dear, for reproof, things that uh, we come to, to know, for correction, the things where maybe we need to be corrected in our lives, and instruction, in other words, instructions on how to live a life that is pleasing to God. So it's the Lord's plan and purpose through these words that we would become thoroughly equipped for all the good works that the Lord has created for us to do. So with that, we'll go to 2 Kings chapter 13. 
Once upon a time in a land far, far away, a long time ago, there were two kingdoms that had come out of one kingdom. The original kingdom was Israel. And if you guys remember the story, after the death of King Solomon, his son took over and took some very bad advice from his advisors. And as a result, the kingdom was split. We had ten nations, what they call the northern kingdom, became known as Israel. And then there was Judah and Benjamin, became known as Judah. So that's part of the setting that we have here. And interestingly, the king who became king of Israel, Jeroboam, the first king of Israel, was not a good king. In fact, in his mind, in his heart, he expressed that he did not want the people in the ten kingdoms to go back to Jerusalem, which was God's command, that's where they would all go, to worship at certain times of the year. And so he wanted to make it convenient for the people in the ten tribes not to go to Jerusalem because he was afraid that if they went back, they might move back over to the house of David. And of course, if you guys are familiar with the scripture, know that it was Messiah was to come through the house of David. That was God's plan. But King Jeroboam did not want to adhere to God's plan. He wanted to keep the ten tribes to himself and make sure they did not go back. So he set up high places convinced the people they didn't have to go to Jerusalem. It was just too far to go, too inconvenient. And then he set up two golden calves in two different cities. And he told them that these are the gods that brought you out of the land of Egypt. If that sounds familiar, you would go over to the story at Exodus, where when Moses was on the mountain receiving the commandments, that Aaron, listening to the people, took gold and threw it into the fire, and miraculously this golden calf came out. That was his story, and he stuck with it, even though it had markings all over it for being molded. But at that time, the people yelled, this is the God, or these are the gods who brought us out of the land of Egypt. So this was not a new story that King Jeroboam told them, but it had not been practiced for hundreds of years. So King Jeroboam made the golden calves and convinced them that these were images of the God, Yahweh, really, who brought them out of Egypt. So immediately they set out mixing idol worship and the true God worship together, which is never good. But that was his, that's what he did. And throughout the, the uh, books of Kings, you'll find out that time and again, the writers of the book will say that these people continue in the sins of Jeroboam. So when we cover that part, that's the sins of Jeroboam. And they added some things along the way. So we'll start with verse 1. Try not to run too far ahead. We're going to do this in sections here. So in the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, the king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned 17 years. So the beginning here, sometimes the names get confusing, but there's a king in Judah whose name is Joash or Jehoash. And that'll be, I'm going to explain later, that's going to become even more confusing. But he's the king of Judah. So the king of Israel at this time now is Jehoaz, Jehoahaz. 
And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel's the sin, and he did not depart from them. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he delivered them into the hand of Haziel, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, all their days. So Jehoahaz pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord listened to him. For he saw the oppression of Israel, because the king of Assyria oppressed them. Then the Lord gave Israel a deliverer, so that they escaped from the hand of the Syrians, and the children of Israel dwelt in their tents as before. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, who had made Israel sin, but walked in them. And the wooden image also remained in Samaria. For he... And if you notice, that's a capital H in the New King James Version to let you know that's talking about God. For he left of the army of Jehoahaz only 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and 10,000 foot soldiers. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz, all that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoahaz rested with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. Then Joash, his son, reigned in his place. We started out within the 23rd year of Joash, and then we see here in this last verse I read, verse 9, there's another king named Joash, but this Joash is the king of Israel. Yes, they had the same names. Both of them at times are called Jehoash, and they're both at times called Joash. Not the same guy, and they overlapped one and a half to three years, somewhere in their, their time frame, they overlapped. So, uh, so at one point in time, there were two kings named Joash. So with that, we see here right away that the king in Israel is following the sins of his predecessors. And if you read back some, you find out that in Israel... One predecessor after the other, after Jehoabim, actually did the same things and continued in his ways. They did not bring the people back to the Lord. And then we see that the anger of the Lord is roused, and he brings in Syria. Now, we've been studying on uh, Thursday night. We just finished the book of Jonah, and Jonah is dealing with Assyria. Not to be confused, Syria and Assyria are not the same places or the same kingdoms. Assyria was prominent at this time, but they had troubles in other places, so they had pulled back some from uh, causing problems in Israel, and also had pulled back some from Syria. So Syria, at this point in time in history, felt emboldened to try to take over more territory and harass people and, and take their goods away from them and, and uh, extend their boundaries. So uh, so some period of time, Syria was a thorn in the side of Israel. And also in Judah, we find out too. They have even come down into Judah and encroached on them. But we see here that, as we're going to see in the book of Habakkuk, that we're studying now on Thursday nights at the Men's Bible Study. That's a plug. Tomorrow night at 7 o'clock in the living room, we'll be continuing our study of Habakkuk. And we find out that God uses nations to correct other nations and in this instance, he is using Syria to come against Israel. 
At some point in time, God will deal with Syria, but right now he is dealing with Israel. And if you were to back up a few chapters, you would find out there were some pretty good occasions where God had dealt very strongly with Syria at other times in the history. But Syria has regrouped in a sense and started coming back against Israel. So sometimes kings and people think that they're operating all on their own, and but God has allowed certain things to happen. And when his people need correction, he brings in correction. So he has allowed Syria to come in and harass and to cause problems for Israel. But we see a good sign here. We find out that uh, Jehoahaz is not totally bad. Okay, He cries out to the Lord. And I think from reading some of the text here, and we kind of get the idea that uh, other people are crying out to the Lord too. And if you remember in the book of Judges, as you go through there, over and over again, Israel would do well, then they'd decline, they'd do well, and decline. And time and time again, God was merciful and long-suffering, and he would raise up what they called a judge, who would bring peace and restoration for a period of time back into Israel and subdue their enemies. But the enemies were always trying to come against them. So God would let the enemies prevail sometimes, and then when they cried out for mercy, God would answer. And in this case, they asked for mercy, and God answered. So they go back. The Syrians pull back. But you notice what happens. First of all, we'll talk about the, uh, the Lord gave Israel a deliverer so that they escaped from under the hand of the Syrians. And the children of Israel dwelled in their tents as before. So peace is restored. And right now, Syria is not bothering him. You could call the judges in Israel, the ones that are named, deliverers. Here, a deliverer is mentioned by what their action was, but we don't know who the deliverer was. We don't know if it was another country. We don't know if it was some leader. All we know is that God says there is a deliverer. And for us, since all correction uh, scripture is valuable for us, what could be there for us is that you don't have to have your name, you don't have to be world-recognized to actually be great in God's kingdom. You can be nameless and do great things. So somebody who is nameless here did something great and said that God brought that deliverer. So it was someone or some country, some nation, whatever, that was submitted to God and let God use them to bring delivery from Syria. Then we look at verse 6, where it says, Nevertheless, <laughs> nevertheless, the people continued in their sins. And what were those sins? The same ones of Jeroboam that we talked about earlier. So it is continuing. They have not truly repented. And not only that, it says the wooden image, which is an Asherah pole, or wooden image in Samaria. And historically, if you didn't know, Samaria became the capital of Israel. And, uh, of course, Jerusalem was still the capital of Judah. Knowing that helps you some in the New Testament when you come and you find out the uh, conflict with the people in uh, Israel at that time, at Jesus' time, and what was going on in Samaria, Samaria with the Samaritans. So that ties together historically. But I had this pole there that was put up in honor of the goddess Asherah, who was a fertility goddess. And so that was still there. 
They did not tear anything down. They didn't tear down any high places. They didn't um, turn totally to the Lord. If you think about this, these people regretted the consequences of their sin. I think we could all regret the consequences of our sin, but do we regret, regret the sin? And that's what these people failed to do. They did not regret the sin. They got caught. <laughs> How many times have we done that in our lives or seen that with other people? You get caught and then you're sorry, but really what it turns out, you're sorry you got caught. So next time you try to be a little more careful and don't get caught, right? So, But that had been historically what was going on in both of these countries, more so in Israel than in Judah. So they have not repented. And we see that when Syria came in, they had really decimated the army of Israel. Only 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, 10,000 foot shoulders. The king was not going to be presumptuous probably and head off to war <laughs> with that kind of uh, army. You've got 10 horsemen, 10 guys that can ride horses, and you've got uh, you know, a few chariots, and not even a whole lot of foot soldiers. So they have been reduced as far as the army goes. So we get down to verses uh, 8 and 9, and we find out that basically kind of wrapping up the history of Jehoaz and telling you that you can actually go to the book of Chronicles, and you can find more information there. And that's true. If you guys remember when Pastor Al went through Chronicles, very often he would come to 1 Kings or 2 Kings and do the correlation and the parallel of what takes place in those books. So you get more information in one place than you, and more information in another place. So it's pretty interesting if you can take the time to actually go and find in Chronicles where it talks about this. Or if you're in Chronicles, come into Kings and put the things together. But we're not going to do that right now. So We go to verse 10. And this is where we have to be careful about getting the names confused. So we see up there in verse 9, Joash, his son, reigned in this place. This is the Joash of Israel. Then we read here in 10, In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoaz, became king over Israel and Samaria. And we're going to notice right down below that that the writer quits calling him Jehoash and calls him Joash. So it's very easy to get them mixed up. So... Uh, I'll try to make sure as we go through that we know which king we're talking about. So this king, Jehoash, the king of Syria, or excuse me, of Israel, says he did evil and decided the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin, but he walked in them. So this king not only did not uh, depart from them, he continued to walk in them. Now, I wanted to point out, I don't know if you guys noticed, but any of you have a uh, New King James Version, and I don't know how many other versions do it, but you notice that Lord, when it's all cap letters, L-O-R-D, that actually means Yahweh. That's actually God's name. But uh, translators, said, most Bibles have translated that as Lord, all capital letters. Other places you'll see a capital L, and lowercase O-R-D, and that's usually Adonai. So the new king is continuing just like his dad did and that guy's dad and all before them. Verse 12, not a rest of the acts of Joash, talking about the king of 
Israel, all that he did, and his might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash rested with his fathers. Then Jeroboam sat on his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. So it looks like, if we stop right there, that Joash kind of comes into picture and he's immediately out of the picture. But as they say on TV, hold on, there's more. So, one thing to point out there is that you can find more information. If you go to Chronicles, is that Joash does get into a battle with the new king of Judah who replaces the Joash over there, <laughs> and they have a battle at the request of the king of Judah. The king of Judah wants to have a war, so they go to war, and Joash, the king of Israel, has victory over Judah. And if you read that account, you find out that Joash came into Jerusalem and went into the temple and stole all the goods and everything out of the temple and took the king. He'd caught the king, made him hostage at one point. So it says he rested with his fathers, and then Jeroboam sat on the throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. And that was a practice they had, as you find out as you read through, that the kings of Israel typically were buried in the same place in Samaria, and the kings of Judah were buried in Jerusalem in the same place. So they had a burial place for the kings in both kingdoms. But we find out here, there's some more to the story with Joash. So we have another person coming into play now, one that's very, very familiar. Should be. This guy's name is Elisha. So Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, O oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. You guys, remember Elisha? He's the prophet that took over from Elijah. And Elisha happened to be with Elijah the day that he was taken up to heaven. And Elijah had told him, if you can stay with me, if you're here when I disappear, then you will take my place. And interesting enough, Elisha, just a little background, had asked for a double portion of Elijah's blessing or Elijah's ministry or his anointing, whichever way you look at it, he wanted a double portion. And it's interesting that the Bible records twice as many miracles for Elisha as the Bible records for Elijah. That's record. That doesn't necessarily mean that he actually did more, but the Bible records twice as many. So uh, he did get the double portion. So if you remember, Elisha was with Elijah and the fires, fiery chariot and fiery horsemen came out of the sky, separated the two, and then a whirlwind took Elijah up to heaven. You've probably heard it before that the chariots took Elijah to heaven, but it actually says the whirlwind took him. And at that time in the book, it's also in 2 Kings chapter 2 is where that story is, the words that the king utters here, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and the horsemen, interesting enough, is exactly what Elijah said, excuse me, Elisha said when he saw Elijah taken up to heaven. I don't know what inspired the king to use the same words, but I would suspect that the Lord somehow was involved in that. It's pretty interesting. So at the beginning of Elisha's ministry and at the very end of his ministry, 
we see the connection to the prophet Elijah. So what does this statement mean? <laughs> my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. For one thing, obviously when Elisha made that statement, he had considered Elijah his spiritual father. Elijah was his spiritual father and his mentor. And seeing the fiery chariots of the Lord prompted him to realize that the real strength in Israel was not their army, was not their king, but it was God and God's army, his supernatural powerful army. And also, in relation to Elijah, that the strength of Israel and probably any country also lies within the godly people and the message of God that comes through God's people. There's strength in that. And Elijah, Elisha knew that they were losing that at that time. But God replaced Elijah, fortunately. Here we see that the king, even though we just read what God had to say about him, that he was evil, and that he did the same kind of sins that Jeroboam did. He walked in them, he continued with them. We see something within him that he recognizes Elisha as a godly man, a spiritual man, and as someone who will be a great loss to Israel. So it could be that the king realizes that Elisha, being the prophet he is, is a source of great strength in Israel because he speaks for God, he acts for God. And he may also realize that behind it all is God's supernatural power and God's armies. And if you would go back a few chapters, you'd find times where uh, it was displayed that God's armies could be seen surrounding the enemy. Only a few people could see that, but God's army was out there. So the real strength in any of the victory that Israel ever had was actually through God and not through their own strength that they thought they had. They got in trouble when they thought it was all their own doing. So that's one of the strange things we see there in verse 14 is the fact that this king, who's not a good king, not really a godly king, has come to the bedside of Elisha when he's dying. David Guzik says that even though it's kind of surprising, we might keep in mind that um, Joaz was not a worshiper of false idols himself, but he was a false worshiper of the true God. Now, I haven't researched that out, but I'm sure that he did. And so it sounded sounds good that he was really mistaken in the way to worship God. And as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of mix here between setting up things that represent God and then trying to bring in worship to the true God at the same time. And part of that would be, even if they hadn't gone, set up the, the golden calves and stuff, the fact they weren't going to Jerusalem would make their worship of God false worship because God has told them, go to Jerusalem. And they would not do that. So even that in itself would be wrong. There are places around the world today, some of them not too far off the American coast, and in places in South America in particular, even in, New in Mexico, hopefully not New Mexico, but it could be, but where there is a mixture of Christianity and spiritualism, 
And there's some really some strange things take place when people think they're worshiping God. So that would make them, in a sense, false worshipers of the true God, thinking that the true God is asking them to do the things that they do. So if that was his mindset, he was not corrected, and, and it wasn't really open to that correction. But, I, but it's interesting, I think, that this king has come, and he's not just there, he's actually weeping over Elisha. He does not want to see Elisha die. He realizes there's a great loss there. So we're going to read here, And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it. And Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. And he said, Open the east window. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. For you must strike the Syrians at affect till you have destroyed them. Then he said, take the arrows. So he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. So he struck three times and stopped. And the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. So if you can kind of picture this, Elisha's in his sick bed. The king comes into his room, and he's crying, and he's wailing probably, lamenting. So he tells the king, he tells somebody to go get a bow and some arrows. So we picture maybe a servant going and getting a bow and arrows and bringing them in, whether it be... Elisha's servant or the king's servant, we don't know. But they bring this in to the king. And Elisha says, take the bow, take an arrow. So you kind of picture the king. He stands up, he takes the bow, puts an arrow in the bow. And while he's doing that, Elisha, perhaps getting up out of bed, we don't really know if he was lying down or sitting up or what he was doing, comes up behind the king and puts his hands on the king's hands. If you think about this, this should be a clue to the king that there is something happening here, some kind of divine intervention that this man of God, who's a prophet, proven over and over again, would come up to the king and in a sense lay hands on him. So he's, you can say, you know, is he trying to help the king pull the bow? Probably not. The king is probably stronger than Elisha is at this point in time. So there's something spiritual taking place at this time. So he tells the king to open the window, open the east window, and point in that direction. So they would be pointing toward Syria. At least that's my understanding, be pointing toward Syria, the country that has been plaguing them and that the king needs to gain victory over. According to one person I read, they said that it was common custom in those days for people to take a spear or an arrow, either throw the spear into or an arrow, shoot it into the country they plan on uh, having victory over or attacking. So this would kind of go in line of that. Obviously this arrow is not going to reach um, Syria from where they are, but it's in that direction. The, the prophet also gives the king a very good clue here of what's taking place when he says, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of deliverance from Syria. Then he says, for you must strike the Syrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them. So the king should be trying to catch on here that 
There's something going on more than just shooting an arrow. But the prophet is telling him that God is involved in this. He's making a connection between the shooting of the arrow and victory over Syria. So, what Joash needed to do was to shoot in faith. So we see, we see that uh, Elisha tells the king to take the arrows. He gives them the arrows. And he tells them to strike the ground with the arrows. And uh, some think that he actually took the arrows and hit the ground. But if you think about it, he probably meant hit the ground outside the window. Because they're in a house, and he didn't say hit the floor. Unless they didn't have floors in those days. I don't know. But I'm thinking that he was actually directing him to shoot out the window. That's an act of faith. Shoot east. Shoot the ground. And the good thing is, you don't have to be a great marksman to hit the ground. So, it wasn't really a complicated thing he asked the king to do. He didn't say hit that tree, hit the dog, you know, hit the bird, anything like that. He says hit the ground. Now we don't know if the Lord is telling uh, Elisha how many times the king should shoot or if the, king, if the Lord reveals it to Elisha after the king gets through shooting. But we see the king only does it three times. And we see that the man of God, the prophet Elisha, is very angry. And he tells the king, you should have shot more times. Because now you're only going to have three victories over the Syrians. But if you'd have kept shooting, you would have had more victories over the Syrians. So what do we have going on there? In a sense, and I got this from someone else, that the uh, shooting... What Joash should, excuse me, what Elisha should ask Joash to do, yeah, uh, something kind of like prayer, in this sense that shooting the arrows required effort and aim. There is effort to pulling a bow and shooting it. And some of you guys would know that a lot better than me. I've shot light bows and stuff as a kid, but I've never done a hunting bow. But I think that takes a little more effort, and it probably even took more effort with these guys than what we have today. They probably didn't have fancy bows like we do. And aim. What was his aim? He wasn't even given a, a, like a great thing he had to do accomplish, but he had to hit the dirt. So like it wasn't something impossible asked. Shooting the arrows required instruction and help from the prophet of God. So here he actually got some help. He got some instruction from God's prophet. So sometimes when we need to do something, we need some instruction. We need some help whether it be from the Lord himself or from our brothers and sisters, definitely always help from the Holy Spirit, whichever way it comes. Shooting the arrows had to be done through an open window. In other words, you couldn't just start shooting the arrows in the house. There has to be opportunity, if, you think, if we apply it to us in our day. If we're going to do something for the Lord, there has to be an open window, an open door, an open opportunity to accomplish what the Lord wants us to do. Shooting the arrows had to be done without knowing the exact outcome ahead of time. The target was only fully known by faith. So the king was asked to do something. And the prophet had given him enough information that he should have been able to make a connection between shooting the arrows and 
victory over the Syrians. Shooting the arrows was ineffective, as we find out here, because it was not repeated enough, which reflected a laugh, lack of confidence in the process. Shooting the arrows had a strategic moment, and when that moment passed, it was gone. The king couldn't say, oh, hey, let me shoot a few more. That time had come and gone. And that's the way it is a lot of times in our life. The moment is gone. I don't know about you guys, but I suspect it's the case that you have realized later you missed an opportunity. And I'm not just talking about for finances or success in your life or something, but I mean opportunities for the Lord. You know, you go away later and you go, wow, I missed it. You ever happen? <laughs> you ever hope it never happens again, but you figure it probably will? <laughs> so he couldn't go back and say, well, I'll shoot a few more arrows. It was like, that was it. You got the one time, buddy. You know, shoot the arrows and whatever you shoot, that's it. It's kind of like, um, I might get the two guys mixed up here, but I think it was Elisha that had the woman get all the jars she could find and fill them up with oil. Kept filling the jars, filling the jars, and filling the jars. And they ran out of jars, so the flow of the oil quit. If she could have had more jars, the oil would have kept flowing. But she did what she could do and got all the jars she could get, even from all the neighbors. So she was there was no condemnation or criticism on her for running out of jars because she had gotten all she could. So looking in retrospect, Joash here should have kept shooting or asked the prophet, how many times should I shoot? You know, how many arrows did he have left? You know, why didn't I shoot all the arrows? You know, why didn't I just keep going? But he didn't. And failing to shoot the arrows not only hurt the king in the long run, but it hurt others. So then we say that the man of God was angry at him because he didn't seize that strategic moment. So Israel, and, and we find out at the very end of this chapter, only enjoyed three victories over the Syrians. And the, and the word is plain here that there could have been many more victories and he could have ended up with complete victory over Syria if he could have continued. Now you may remember a few pack, uh, passage, uh, chapters back, King Ahab had a chance with the Syrians to finish them off, but he made a uh, treaty with the king of Syria instead of killing him. And the prophecy over him was that since he didn't kill the king of Syria, now he was going to die. And that prophecy came to pass. It was his life for the king of Syria. So a couple of times they've had a chance to do better, so to speak, against Syria, and both kings failed. So there's many situations in our own lives when we should keep shooting the arrows but sometimes we are content with a small effort. And again, the uh, king should have continued until Elisha said, that's enough, or he had run out of arrows, whichever came first. So for us, what do we get out of this? We keep shooting in the battle against sin. We don't ever want to give up. We want to keep shooting against sin. Keep shooting in the attainment of Christian knowledge. We want to continue to grow in what we know about the Lord, what we know about the Scriptures. We want to keep shooting in the attainment of faith. We'd want our faith to continue to grow. Keep shooting to do more for the kingdom of God. 
there's a really good reason for us to keep shooting because the world, the flesh, and the devil are going to continue to shoot at us. Those three never give up. They're always shooting at us. When God invites us to take something by faith, we must receive it boldly and ask Him, knowing that He is a great King and a giver who is honored by bold, reverent requests. So only Joash's lack of faith manifested in his half-hearted smiting of the arrows (laughs) or shooting the arrows kept him from destroying the Syrians utterly. And it was done unto him according to his faith. Now it's true, the prophet did not tell him how many times to shoot, didn't tell him what was going to happen, you know, but he had given him enough information that he should have kept going until the prophet said, that's enough. So what is it, why is it sometimes we give up, we quit shooting, we quit, quit acting on the instructions that we have, and here's some of the excuses we could have, and Joash could have used any of these, but we don't really know why he quit shooting, but it could be. I stopped shooting because I didn't want to be presumptuous and ask for too much. I stopped shooting because I'm not a very good archer, which wouldn't be a very good excuse in his case since he was just told to shoot the ground. I didn't. I stopped shooting because Elisha didn't help me more. I try to apply these in our own situation, our own lives. I, I would have done more, but I didn't get enough help. I didn't get enough help from other people. And I'm not saying that's never the case, but we have to be careful about using that as an excuse that we don't press on and continue to do what God has asked us to do. I stopped shooting because I thought three was plenty. I stopped shooting because I didn't think it would do any good. In other words, there would be lack of faith there. It's like I'm wasting my time doing this. Oh, here's a good one. I stopped shooting because I wasn't in a shooting mood. I didn't feel like it. I tell you what, there's a lot of days I just don't feel like it. I don't know about you guys. but and That's one of the problems of getting older sometimes. It takes more energy to generate the energy. <laughs> Sometimes my biggest accomplishment is actually getting out of bed in the mornings and going and doing what I need to do. So I stopped shooting because I didn't want to get overexcited. <laughs> so those are some reasons we might would quit shooting. Not very good reasons, but we want to press on. If you think about it, You know, there's a scripture in Philippians that says that I can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens me. So we have Him as our strength. We have the Holy Spirit in us. We have the Holy Spirit to come and help us. And uh, if we could keep that in mind, that we can do all things, that doesn't mean I can fly off the top of a building or any of those things. So what it means is I can do all the things God asks me to do with His help. If I try to do it my own, I'm going to be in trouble. But I can do whatever God asks me to do as long as I'm relying upon the Lord. And the Lord at times may bring in lots of resources, lots of people to help us. He may not. That's His choice to do so. But He just asks us to be faithful and to continue. Keep shooting the arrows. And see, we're going back to the the Scriptures again that Elisha died and they buried him. 
And there was a raiding band that came from Moab. And this is something, you notice here it says, they baited the land in the spring of the year. This is something they like to do in the spring. Okay, Weather cleared up a little bit, and here they come. They could count on them every year. Here comes the Moabites raiding the land. And so it was, so the Moabites are coming, and there's some Israelites that are burying a man. So they suddenly spied a band of raiders, and they put the man in the tomb of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. It's the only recorded instance we have, as far as I know, is of a dead man touching the bones of another dead man and coming back to life. Um, fortunately, we don't see anybody at this particular time trying to make some kind of, uh, you know, hey, let's dig up Elisha's bones and take them around and touch all the dead people. You know, None of that happened. But there was a, it's a very interesting miracle. And I didn't know, but I, I uh, have come to understand that there is... Uh, Within some Christian <laughs> circles, there is an emphasis on touching the saints' dead bones that you can get power out of that. So, um, I also know of a uh, very well-known uh, church in the United States that uh, they go out now and lay on graves of saints trying to absorb their spirit, which is really spooky. <laughs> So, I won't mention their name right now, but uh, they're very well known around the United States, having a big influence. So then to finish up the chapter, And Hazael, the king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them, had compassion on them, and regarded them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It would not yet destroy them or cast them from his presence. Once again, we see the long-suffering of the Lord, and he's doing it because of his covenant that he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says that not yet will he destroy them. History will show, if you keep reading Kings, you find out that he finally does cast them out of the land. But they've had hundreds of years of mourning, and God has such long-suffering patience, and we've talked about earlier, time and time again, he would rescue them for a while, and then they would always backslide. Then Haziel, the king of Syria, died. Then Ben-Hadad, his son, reigned in his place. There was another Ben-Hadad. Hadad. Uh, that's the one. So this one's got the same name as the previous one. And the first king, Hadad, or Ben-Hadad, was the one that uh, King Ahab actually had a chance to kill and did not kill. So his son reigned in his place. And Jehoash, or Joash, the same guy here, the son of Jehoahaz, recaptured from the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Haziel, the cities which he had taken out of the hand of Jehoahaz, his father by war. Three times Joash defeated him and recaptured the cities of Israel. So we're going to wrap that up there. And hopefully we've all seen something, things out of there that we can apply to our own lives. If we don't give up, the Lord will give us the strength we need to do what He asks us to do. In regards to that, we're going to move into communion, make a connection between what we've been studying and communion. <laughs> you know, the Lord talked about how one of the things He really hates is that people bring 
dissension among the brethren. And at one time Israel was one nation, and they were all brethren. And they were still brethren, even when the kingdom split. So God does not like division among his people. So communion is one of those times when we come together that we do remember the work of Jesus on the cross. But we also remember that we are one brethren. We are family. And the Lord doesn't want division amongst us. He, he uh, doesn't want us to be at odds with one another. He doesn't want anybody causing dissension among the brethren. He does not look on that very favorably at all. In fact, he's opposed to it. In fact, if you read in 1 Corinthians, we find out that the people who did not regard the body of Christ properly, it says, and these were Christians, Paul calls them brothers and calls them sisters, and some of them were sick because of their attitudes and their actions in regards to the body of Christ, and some of them had actually died because of the way they regarded the body of Christ. So it's a serious matter, not just in the act of communion, but in the acts of our lives, that we are uh, considerate of one another, truly remember we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you come from a good, well-balanced family, it's really easy to think of one another as brothers and sisters and how to love one another. But if you come from a dysfunctional family, sometimes it's hard to get behind the ideas that we're brothers and sisters because all I ever did as brothers and sisters were fight like cats and dogs and didn't get along. And maybe have even carried that over in their whole lives. So we need to, that's one of the thing, reasons we study the scriptures is to find out what God's view on things are. Not what we have experienced in our own lives. Because if we rely on our own spirits, we come up with some really weird stuff. So we go to God's word to be corrected. And a lot of times we hang on to things that happen to us as children or as adults even. We don't let them go. And we'll use those as an excuse to not be the kind of people God wants us to be. But we have Jesus Christ. We have the Holy Spirit. So we are without excuse to hang on to things, to let things cause us to uh, divide from one another, to be bitter toward one another, to gossip about one another, not to care about one another, or to put ourselves ahead of someone else. So with that in mind, I want to ask Gabe to come up and lead us in a, a song. And um, we're going to do the communion, which Pastor Al likes to call it buffet style. And I went to Golden Corral yesterday, and uh, please don't do the communion like I did yesterday, because there won't be any for anybody else. So, so with that, as Gabe leads us in worship, come up and take your elements and go back to your seat, then we'll take them all together. Okay? We hope you've enjoyed spending this time in God's Word, and our prayer is that you'll take it with you and apply it to your life. If you'd like to learn more about Calvary Longview, visit our website at cclongview.com. While you're there, you can find more teachings, request prayer, or even find out how you can get involved with what God is doing in our city. We hope you have an amazing day. We'll see you back here next time, and remember, Jesus loves you, and so do we.